we don't really do October in Australia. We just go straight to November and have it twice. Oh, really? No, well, we have October, but it's not... We don't do anything like autumnal. We don't have fall there. Of course, right. No Thanksgiving, mm. no Halloween, no fun. <laughs> um, it's basically Christmas decorations in the stores from, what, like September? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you get a bit of that here. Mm. Yeah. Is your winter again? Uh, the winter, it's just opposite. So every season is opposite. So we get our winter when you have the summer. Mm. And then around Christmas time, we get 45 degree heat waves. Mm. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever been? Maybe I better uh, introduce the show, introduce you. Over a hill and under a misty mountain, deep within the unceded Musqueam territory of Vancouver, British Columbia, I'm Doug Vandelay with another episode of Comedy Zeitgeist. You can follow the show on Twitter at Comedy Zeitgeist and pester me at Doug Vandelay. Hello to everybody listening on CITR 101.9 here for the first 30 minutes of the show. Apparently able to fit in an aeroplane overhead bin, though I only just managed to fit him into my schedule. I'm joined today by Just for Laughs Northwest-nominated Best Breakout star, Harris Anderson. How's it going, Harris? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm good, thanks. I've got written down here, Gold Fever Follies. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) And that was supposed to be a question, but I've just written down the note. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is, then? Oh, that's uh, that was my first ever performing gig. I got out of actually uh, my first after my first year of uh, theater school. It's basically like uh, I don't I don't know if you guys have the equivalent in Australia, but like um, almost like tourism theater. So it was like a historical themed show that was done in the interior of British Columbia, in this old theater, and uh, we did this little like mini musical for I think a couple of times a day for for tourists that were passing through and things like that. Kind of like almost like historical reenactment. Oh, but, cool. Uh, yeah, but I did that for two summers. That was actually pretty fun. Do you play any uh, historical figures of note? I think it was a composite of a bunch of different historical figures. It was kind of all loosely based on on the history of the area and things like that. But with like, uh, you know, it was all kind of like farcical. A lot with music and things like that. It was just a little, it was just a short little show for tourists to take in, really. And, um, yeah, I did that for two summers, and that was fun. It was good. Did you say that was out of college or out of high school? Out of college. And what what'd you study there? I went to a uh, small performing arts college on Vancouver Island called uh, the Canadian College of Performing Arts, which uh, boasts such alumni as Carly Rae Jepsen. Everyone, everyone learned, like, things about dance and, and singing and voice training and things like that, so it was, it was a good all-around education i think well yeah. you, did you get into comedy while you were in college i did yeah my first year of college i was um i'd always wanted to try it but i'd never really worked up the courage to and then uh my roommate at the time was also he wanted to start uh, doing it so we kind of both went to a show together and asked to get up on stage and and we did and uh that was that i kind of caught the bug after that so i started performing when I was in college, my second year of college, while I was in Victoria, on the on Vancouver Island. Did you have a set prepared already when you did that? I did. Yeah, I had. I mean, as as good a set as you can do in your first time. It was a loose, you know. It was just some things I'd written down that I was thinking about, and um, yeah, I went up with a sheet of paper, and I was, you know, stiff and awkward and all those things, but. 
uh, it was it was overall a positive experience. I think I did okay for my first time. Not amazing, but okay. Enough to enough to to want to try it again to try to do better, but not traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> Anything like that. So um, sort of open mic scenes from there. Big pardon. So sort of uh, open mic nights for a while from there. It's gotten bu- it's gotten busier in Victoria, but when I first started, it was kind of. It wasn't too much of that stuff. It was kind of like a once a month show. Right. So I think I would do it usually once a month or so, but sometimes two, twice a month if there was a pop-up show that I got invited to. But I was also very busy with school, so I didn't, I didn't have as much time to devote to it. But uh, when I moved to Vancouver, then I really I started going at it. Uh, I sort of I made it my main focus. So it's mostly uh, dramatic acting? No, at mostly... The, at the school? Uh, no, if, if you... It would, it, more of a, if you had to like put it under one umbrella, it would be musical theater. That was right. actually the the main focus of it, kind of. And um, I, I did a fair amount of musical theater in community college and things like that, and a lot of productions through the the school and everything. And I'd always done that just because not because I particularly I was enthralled by musical theater. I like some of it very much, but it was just kind of what was going up. You know, community community theater does it because it's what gets people out to go see the shows and things like that. Musicals are very popular and. So I kind of just fell into those because I, I I liked being on stage and I liked performing, but that was always what was going on. I wasn't particularly talented as a musical uh, theater actor, but it just I usually got the parts with uh, the most lines because I was pretty good at memorizing lines. So a couple of a couple of musical, a couple of plays I was in, I didn't even musicals I was in, I didn't even sing any songs. I just came on and did exposition or whatever. So it was interesting. <laughs> An interesting little chapter of my life, I guess. What are uh, some of the shows you've been in musical theater world? Starting in high school, like Guys and Dolls, Jesus Christ Superstar, Les Mis. Well, there's no talking at all in Les Mis. See what yeah, I, I had a singing part in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I insisted on speaking my lines. No, yeah, there was... Um... I mean, I guess you could get away with some minimal singing as Javert, as yeah. we saw in the theatrical release. I'm not a bad singer. I'm my enthusiasm outweighs my my skill. I'm not a bad singer, but I'm not the world's greatest. So I usually well, we have auto tune now, so it doesn't really make it exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. In terms of acting, I guess you, you've had some uh, some on screen credits as the uh, fired former employee in something called Men's Health. Yeah. Yeah, that was just a little short PSA that I did with for a uh, men's health organization. Right. Yeah. Oh, I I was assuming it was a short a short film called Men's Health. I was hoping there was a story to it. No, oh no, no. I'm just getting into that sort of stuff uh, as of this recording. So I've booked I booked like a couple of commercials, but that's about it really. So are you a, a like a victim of Men's Health in this commercial? No, it was about. Uh, it's hard to explain unless you've seen it. It's kind of it was about. Uh, Staying physically active, I guess, or something like that. It was just a, a short little skit. It, took, it was probably ten or fifteen seconds long, or, or something like that. It wasn't even. It wasn't a full commercial. It was just a, a short little thing that played on Instagram and social media sites. I think. So you're on an episode of a Vancouver podcast called uh, "Steel Toes Required" that I can't seem to find hosted anywhere. Hmm. Uh, what kind of labor job horror stories did you bring to the table there? Well, any? one time I, w- I worked for my uncle. He. he he inst- he's a glazier. He installs glass, and so I I worked for him on and off a couple of times. And uh, one time he's a bit of a prankster. And one time we were working on this this like mansion somewhere outside of Victoria, and the this the, the roof was glass. The roof was all glass, 
and we had to walk across it and it was like an 80 foot not 80 feet i want to say like 30 feet down or something like that with high ceiling and everything and um i don't like heights so walking on glass i was a little bit nervous and then basically long story short he dropped a quarter behind me and if you drop a quarter on a pane of glass it sounds exactly like glass cracking so in that moment i thought i was about to perish so he did that intentionally oh he did that intentionally yes he did. With you. oh yes yeah 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 that was that was truly frightening do you know that podcast is still running i don't know if the guys are still doing it or probably not because i know one of them uh moved moved out east i believe so right. i don't think they're doing it anymore Oh, I've got a, I've got a few horror stories myself to share, but mm. I'll, I'll save that if they come back online and uh, want to talk to me. <laughs> I've got written down here that you're uh, known for voices and impressions. Yeah, uh, well, I, I used, I start when I started doing comedy. I used to do impressions, just short little things. My problem was I could never do anyone new, so it was kind of like it's probably a bit outdated. I mean, like, you know, I would do like. Everyone's heard Jack Nicholson impressions and Schwarzenegger impressions and all that. And that's, I I could do some of those okay, but I could never really do anyone new. So I just kind of stopped doing them. But voices, excuse me, I love doing voices. I love trying to figure out new voices and figure out which voice works best for a certain bit or a certain joke. I just find that if you have, if you write a good bit and sometimes it can be, sometimes it's it can be underplayed and it's best to do it that way. But sometimes if you have a good uh, character voice to go along with it, it can really put it into overdrive because it's almost like you're kind of bringing the bit to life sometimes. Not always. Sometimes you can, and I've done that many, many, many times. Sometimes you can do overkill and it ends up sounding a bit goofy or like you're trying a bit hard. But sometimes when you find the, the right voice for, a bit or a character in a story that you're telling it can really i just like that moment where it kind of comes alive and an audience really responds to it do you sort of like pre-prepare like a voice with a bit or does it just happen it just kind of happens while i'm kind of thinking about it or doing it on stage i mean yeah i just i just always love different accents and character voices and things like that and yeah, I don't think, sometimes I think when I'm just thinking of something, it just kind of comes to me, but I don't, I try not to make it, it's pretty rare that I think, oh, I, I'll come up with, like, say, for example, it's pretty rare that I'll come up with a voice and then think I should write a bit around this or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it just kind of, it kind of happens organically or it doesn't happen, you know. Do you have any sort of go-to characters or accents? Not really, no. I mean, it's not. Uh, it's kind of like the the style that I'm trying to develop. And then there's someone who's kind of like I would say Maria Bamford is a master of the style. That she, I mean, she has so many accents and characters and voices and different phrasings inside of her that she can just kind of. She's like she has an arsenal of them. So I just kind of I don't have anything that and she has a couple of go-tos like she has like her kind of like sultry voice which she uses for like feminine authority figures yeah. and she has like kind of a child voice that she uses for for kids and she has she does her mother a lot in her act. Um I don't have anything like that I really think I just kind of it's more kind of, I kind of put it more in the ballpark as opposed to that kind of specificity. How do you how do you develop uh your different voices? Uh, a lot of it is just kind of degrees, you know, I just try to take it to its logical conclusion. Like if I, and I think a lot, you know, lots of comics do voices and lots of comics, you know, I just, 
there's lots of comics that do voices if they're you know impersonating someone who's tough they'll kind of like do this and just kind of suggest you know they'll rough up their voice a little bit i just like to see how far i can take it and just kind of push it as far as i can in in, in a certain direction so is, it, is there any sort of offstage preparation for them not really so it's just yeah whatever uh, happens at the time. sometimes i guess i mean sometimes i probably sometimes i i kind of uh, you know, every comic kind of practices whether they think about it or not. They're always kind of running it over in their head and stuff like that. And yeah, I think certain certain bits require you to practice them more just because they do have a very specific vocal quality. And like, it, it can't be a halfway thing because I've done, I've had bits like that I've written like that where I'll be doing a voice, but I'll be kind of anxious about it or reticent or, and doing it at 60%, it just gets nothing. But once I commit to it fully and do it at 100%, then it coalesces and everything works. Uh, what do you think is the hardest accent to do? Oh, there's lots I can't do. What about the, the hardest one to do that you can do? I've been told that my Australian accent actually sounds more New Zealand, New Zealander. Well, you know I'm going to have to ask you to do it now. Oh, right? no, no, no. I couldn't. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> but um, I find that... Just, just that say much... Timey Kangaroo Downsport. In an Australian accent? Yeah, go, go Timey on. Timey Kangaroo Downsport. Yeah, that's good. It's, yeah. it's a bit, bit of a... Bit of a like nineteen eighties uh, yeah, Paul not, Hogan. It's not movie. my strongest. Um, French I find very hard. I don't I don't do a very good French accent. All right, so Timey Kangaroo Downsport in a French <laughs> accent. In a French accent, Timey Kangaroo Downsport. I'm so terrible at it. Throw um, a tabernacle in there. Yeah, tabernacle. Yeah, no, I'm not very good at French or any of that sort of stuff. Um, do you, Do you know the trick to the Australian accent? What's that? It, don't move your top lip. Oh really. Don't move your top lip ever. And oh, then, really? And then and then everything comes out Australian. I'll remember that. Yeah, because I, I don't sound Australian in Australia. Uh-huh. People think I sound American. Oh, yeah. But, and then people at work, I think, think I sound like Crocodile Dundee anyway. <laughs> in terms of characters, this is one, I've never been able to come across someone who can do Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson? It's a, it's a deceptively difficult voice to do. Oh, I could kind of do it, I think. Well, I do like the, like, oh, that sort of hey, thing. That's pretty good. Oh, March. <laughs> okay, no joke. That's legitimately the best Homer Simpson I've ever heard. Oh, wow. That's high praise. Another one, I mean, people can do exasperated Jerry Seinfeld, but not normal talking Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, he's hard. I couldn't, yeah, yeah I couldn't do that. Like the exasperated one is kind of easy because it's oh, yeah, like a, does a, a few uh, things. Yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you got the more sort of Chewbacca approach to voices. Yeah. Just uh, diff- different moans and things. Can you do a Chewbacca? I guess. I'm, yeah, not, I, renowned. I, I'm not renowned I for think my you're, Chewbacca. Uh, not giving yourself enough credit. <laughs> do Do you slip in any into any impressions in your bits? No, not really. I don't really do that many impressions anymore. I don't really. Not that I can think of. I mean, there's kind of things that are kind of, I guess, impressions of people that no one famous, but certain people that I've met are just kind yeah. of, uh, even impersonate comics all the time, you know. I mean, I'm sure like, you try to rid yourself of the habit, but I'm sure there's lots of things that I do where I'm impersonating another comic where I don't even think about it. It's just part of the, I think, your natural development right. as you're doing it. You're going to, you're, you kind of subconsciously steal from from people inflections and not material obviously but like inflections and mannerisms and phrasing everyone does it it's just it can't be helped really yeah i mean like some people have figured it out people can teach comedy then you can mimic it Mm. Mm -hmm. oh yeah you were saying before that impressions like Arnold schwarzenegger and uh uh jack nicholson Mm -hmm. sort of everyone can do i mean i was reading recently that 
every year that goes by, Leonardo DiCaprio is sort of turning into Jack Nicholson. So maybe you could do that one and just say it's Leo. I mean, he is definitely starting to look like him. I don't know. People always uh, people say like, oh, there's less character voices nowadays, but I'm starting to think more and more that's an excuse. I mean, because there's people who do impressions nowadays of people. I mean, uh, that what's that guy's name? Ross Marquand? Marquand? Uh, I've seen that written he, down, but I thought act- that was... Yeah, he's an actor. I think he's on The Walking Dead, but he also does... He's an incredible impressionist. And he does like John C. Riley. And I'd never heard anyone do John C. Riley, and uh, but he does it perfectly. Mm, Who okay. is he on The Walking Dead? I don't know. I don't watch The Walking Dead, but I think that's his most excuse me most prominent credit. But um, he he's had a couple of things on YouTube which have gone viral because he is a, an exceptionally gifted impressionist. Oh, he's Aaron in The Walking Dead. Okay, he's kind of a, a nothing character. Um, that's not important. How <laughs> <laughs> I got tired just into dismissing that. the mats. Okay, I'm not dis- work. I, he's a pretty compelling character. Yeah. He breaks breaks down the. Uh, he he's quite successful at, at breaking down the tough exterior of Daryl in, oh, in okay. uh, season six or seven. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I recently watched it. Tali was away for a month, and I decided to watch all of The Walking Dead. So, you know, that's why I ask. I see a lot of Norman Reedus working with uh, Hideo. Kid- Kojima these days on a video game if you if you get into that at all wasn't he working on a silent hill game or something or was well sort of well, kojima made uh the metal gear series right and yeah. he's making this new one that is maybe it is silent hill because mm. it looks kind of silent hill but it's this horror game and uh they've used full-on mocap and facial capture of norman Reedus, and he like is the main character oh, okay which is interesting interesting but you know i don't know if uh either you or me is is interested enough in that to be talking about it right now uh, what's your process for writing a set i usually have an idea that i think of and it just kind of comes to me and i make a little note of it on some recording device whether whatever's handy my phone or whatever and then when i go to to write i get my notebook and i go through all these little thought fragments that i have thought of and um and i try to flesh them out i try to think of how can i Basically, it's, it's joke writing, but I kind of think I I tend to write. Some people are really good at writing like one-liners or very short jokes, and I'm I, I find that's not really how my my brain works. Uh, I have to write like an entire bit down. So what happens? I'll write a bit around that idea, which is usually about two or three pages. Then I'll go and perform it. One out of a thousand times, everything I've written down will work. One most of the time, I'd say about maybe ten percent of it to twenty-five percent of it will work. And I take it back and then I go and I cross out everything that didn't work and I see what did work and try to flesh out the bits that did work and then you just go on stage and you do it again and mm. kind of rinse, repeat type thing. I don't, I'm, I'm really interested in comics processes. I, it's, it seems, it's hard to get a straight answer out of some, out of comics sometimes about, cause I like to know the specifics. I like to know like, like, do you have like a, do you, do you write at home? Do you go, do you go, is there a special place you go to like a coffee shop or a restaurant? Do you have a notebook? Do you write on a computer? Do you like pencil? Do you write in ink? I'm interested in all those things, but it's hard to get a straight answer out of comics for some reason. And my, my main query with that is, do you sit down and say, I'm going to write some comedy now? Or does, uh, for lack of a better term, inspiration strike? I, I kind of have to regiment myself to say, like, now I need to go. I need to go. I kind of become, like, aware when I, when I need to write more material, when I, when, I, when I feel like I should have something new to put out, then, then I'll say, okay, I need to 
go to a space where I can write, which is usually a coffee shop or something like that. I can't write from home. Too many distractions. So usually a coffee shop or somewhere quiet where I just go with my notebooks and have my ideas and my music and I just sit and just try to to do however however long I can write for until I run out of things to I can't until I run out of things to write about. I can't uh, or I haven't learned the dis write or maybe it's not a question of discipline. But you know, it seems to be the the fastest way to write a uh, a bad joke is to just write a joke for the sake of writing it, or to try to force something out. You yeah. know, it's not very sly if you're telling the audience, you know, like, oh, look at this, you know, this is what I made. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, I think kind of the the, the magic of of stand up is when you're watching someone and it's so you almost kind of forget that they've written at all. It's just kind of coming out of them. It's it's. Uh, Almost like it's that kind of spontaneous thing, which is like off the top of their head, which is why some people, you know, what some audience members actually think when they, you know, when when they heckle or things like that, they think, oh, it's coming out of off the top of this person's head. They're yeah. just making it up as they go along, so I can't disrupt anything. So, have you ever had to uh, deal with a heckler? Oh yeah, everyone, anyone who's anyone who's anyone who does it has to. Yeah, I've been, yeah, you deal with it. Have any uh, standout stories from Hecklers? Not really. No, I've I've been I've been, if you want to call it lucky, I haven't had any really truly hellish encounters or anything like. Um, I had a uh, I had a, a a lady bartender say she was gonna beat me up one time while I was on stage. Was she serious? Yeah, she was angry about something, and uh, a joke I made or something, and she thought I was insulting her, and I wasn't. But she uh, said she was going to get on stage and assault me. <laughs> and, uh, she did, It ended up happening, but that's probably the most extreme thing. Um, I've been lucky in that I've never been, like, apart from that, <laughs> that one lady, physically threatened or anything. I've had friends that have had glasses and bottles thrown at them and things like that. And, you know, it, I'm not looking to that sort of thing happening. But if it happens, I guess I'll deal with it in the moment, you know. Outside of comedy and, I guess, stand-up circles, you don't really hear about that very much as comics getting assaulted on stage yeah it happens it's it, it does happen i've seen you know videos on youtube and then i've it's happened to friends of mine where you know someone someone heckles and doesn't like doesn't like what the response is and then they feel like they have to save face by you know going for the comic and uh it hasn't happened to me yeah it's part of the element of danger i guess that is all pervasive in in stand-up there is a, there is an undeniable element of danger every time you go to a, a stand up show. I think you don't uh, really notice heavy security or anything in a in a comedy club either. No, in my experience. No, no. I mean, no, certainly not at like bar. Usually, almost all, almost never at, at like bar shows or lounge shows or just shows that kind of are at venues that aren't specifically designed for comedy clubs. There is usually a couple of people around and and things like that. Yeah, I, I try not to think about it because it's just one of those things that you can't really, you'd never leave your house if you thought about it all the oh, time, yeah. you know? Yeah. So what are your favorite rooms to perform in? The, kind, the room in Vancouver that I that I kind of like think of as my home room is uh, this place called the Kino Cafe. That's on Canby and 19th Street. And that's actually the longest running room in, in the city, independent room in the city. And that's uh, run by... Um, a gentleman named uh, Steve Allen, who's kind of, it wouldn't be too grand to describe him as the patron saint 
of Vancouver comedy. He's such a generous promoter and producer, and uh, he's always uh, all, all, he's a, a, he's very generous with his time and praise. And uh, he runs out also with a lady, a, a, a very sweet lady named Laura Achille, and they're great. They just really make it feel like home when you're there and it's it may they make it feel like a really good place for co- comedians to try things out and play around and see how they can stretch and bend their material and things like that so that's my, probably my favorite place to do to do comedy i've heard that's a, a good place to get started as well yes because steve is both steve and laura are also very generous with new comics and when i first came to town that was the first time i ever the first stage i ever performed on in vancouver was at the kino and uh, he was very—he was so generous with me, and uh, continues to be. Um, he always, um, even because in, in the, the first year, I found it actually quite hard to get time. No one knew who I was, and I wasn't especially good. And um, but he was—he was very encouraging and said, you know, keep coming back, and was good about putting me up. And then so it's kind of, um, yeah, we become friends, and I just—I just like being there. It's a—it's a good vibe. Uh, are there any rooms like that in other cities you perform in? No, I haven't. Uh, apart from Victoria, I haven't actually done comedy in any other any other city, really. I mean, uh, I'd like to get out there. I haven't had the chance yet, but I've heard the Maritimes are especially fun to play. Where's that? Like the, the um, you know the eastern seaboard of Canada, like the East Coast. Right. Um, I've just heard that the people there really uh, really dig it. Cool. And so I've been kind of wanting to go out there for a while. Yeah, hopefully in the near future. For anyone on CITR, thanks so much for tuning in. That's the end of our time slot, but you can hear the full episode along with other podcasts on cavegoblins.com. For anyone else, stick around. We've still got lots more to talk about with Harris. Now, before the show, I asked Harris about a comedic influence to talk about today, and he came back with Jonathan Winters. So what does he mean to you? Jonathan Winters is my comedy idol, and he's kind of um, not necessarily my favorite stand-up, because he kind of retired from stand-up in the 60s. But uh, just in general, as like an overarching comedy influence, he's kind of the the guy for me. So, yeah, he means a lot to me. Where'd you first come across his work? first came across his work when my, I think it was either my dad or my mom, I can't remember who, uh, got a, a DVD from the library, which was um, kind of a documentary about him. I think it was called On the Loose or something. But it was just kind of a, a documentary, a short documentary about his career and the sort of things he did. And it was all clips and things like that. But I I just immediately was fascinated by him. You know, I mean, he's he's had a... People, people kind of think of him as like a proto-Robin Williams because of the influence he had on Robin Williams. He was um, so original especially for his time and considering what what kind what com- most comedians were doing at that time i think he was so original and so um you did what he did with such abandon that you know i think he paved the way for people like not only robin williams but people like jim carrey as well you know people who and maria bamford as well people who kind of have little ways of like pushing comedy and and he was just kind of an, an influence on me in the fact that I always wanted to not do exactly what he did, but I wanted to have a kind of a uh, large, very performance-based style of, of stand-up to do. That's kind of the st- the sort of thing I I really that really resonated with me. And I'm, you know I'm not I'm not uh, not putting down people who do who are subdued on stage and like you know just deliver a straight monologue i mean i think any 
any form of comedy is valid as long as you're being funny. But what he did always just resonated with me. I, he was he was doing voices, he was doing characters, and he could be he could be funny deadpan as well. He was kind of this like Swiss Army knife. I thought he kind of had a tool for everything. So you find he's uh, influenced your uh, stand-up? I'm I'm sure he has. I I yeah. I think about him a lot. I just in terms of kind of his his style of comedy. I kind of think of it as like world building and i think that maria bamford is very much in that tradition and that they he he did bits that felt almost like mini plays or movies they had characters and they felt like lived in and they they had sound effects and it was almost like he was like populating this this idea and i just i just always liked that maybe it's because i'm a very i kind of think very visually i'm a visual person so I think the fact that he was able to do that really resonated with me. So do you think that uh, given that Robin Williams even himself claimed such an influence from Jonathan Winters that you would also maybe have some influence from Robin Williams? I'm sure. I, I, I adored Robin Williams. I think I still remember when Live on Broadway came out and that was, um, that, had, that was a huge cultural event in a way, I felt like. I remember when that came out and just watching it and just being blown away. And, you know, I think he was in his fifties by the time when he recorded that or late forties or fifties. But like, I remember my high school, it was huge. Kids were talking about it nonstop and everything. It was kind of this like big thing. And then before that, I mean, you know, like his work as the genie in Aladdin was, was, uh, I, I think an influence on me. I, I certainly, I certainly loved that performance. I've absolutely adored it. That was one of the like first uh, performances from any kind of genre, whether it's stand-up or film, that I that really resonated with me. I always wanted to do something like that, you know, something that that big and and everything. Have you ever done any voice acting? Uh, very little. It's something very little, but it's something I've always wanted to to get into, and hopefully. Hopefully in the, in the next, in the near future, I'll, I'll have a chance to do do it more because that is something I am very interested in. Yeah. Well, speaking of voice acting with uh, Robin Williams as the genie, when we're talking about Jonathan Winters here. I was looking for what I would most know him f- from because uh, I must admit, uh, before you brought him up, I uh, the name didn't ring a bell, and so he voiced uh, Grandpa Smurf. <laughs> oh yeah. All the way through the Smurfs, and even in the the new live action films. Yeah, it was actually his his last film role it was Grandpa Smurf. Yeah, that's, sorry, I can imagine his voice, pretty strong in my mind. Yeah, yeah, I, I've never seen those movies, but I'm sure that there. Have you seen? Um, it's a Mad 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 World. Uh, no, is that the one? That's the one they take off in The Simpsons, right? When uh, they're searching for the the treasure from the cat burglar. Correct. Yeah. yeah, that was probably his best known film. He didn't have a ton of success in film. I think they I think they never really found that was his biggest success hands down. I think they never really found a vehicle that fitted him. He seemed to have that problem throughout his career where he never found it seemed like people didn't really know what to do with him even though he was insanely talented and and hugely influential. He just kind of existed in his own little universe. Maybe it was just the wrong time for him. Maybe he needed to hit his prime around the same time that a Robin Williams would when Disney was making these things like aladdin and 
Who knows? Maybe. I mean, he was still, uh, he was still, um, he was still famous. I mean, and, and still revered by a lot of comics. I think Rolling Stone has him at like number 15 on the, their list of the 100 greatest stand-ups or things, something like that. So he definitely, definitely had an influence. I thought this was interesting. Uh, Winter's career started as a result of a lost wristwatch about six or seven months after his marriage in 1948. The newlyweds couldn't afford to buy another one. Then his wife Eileen read about a talent contest in which the first prize was a wristwatch and encouraged Jonathan to go down and win it, uh, which he did. And so his performance led to a disc jockey job where he was supposed to introduce songs and announce the temperature. But gradually through his ad-libs and... Uh, persona and antics he took over the show which is a pretty interesting career trajectory makes you think there's not a lot of stuff like that happens now well yeah he i mean i also have respect for him because he you know he did not come from a show business world or a show business family he came from you know you know a rural area of america and um i think yeah he had he did he worked at the radio station and then he said well I think he, he said to his wife, you know, like, I'm, I think New York is the place to go. And she supported him, but she said, you know, you have to, you have a certain time period or because he had a family to support. And then if that doesn't work out, you'll have to come back and sell farming equipment or something like that. Right. So he went out to New York and um, I think within a couple of years or a year or so, he was, he was huge. He was everywhere on the Tonight Show and headlining clubs and things like that. Yeah, I, I always liked that. And then uh, I guess that led to the Jonathan Winters show itself, which made television history in 1956 uh, when it was broadcast the first public demonstration of color videotape. I did not know that. He soon used uh, video technology to appear as two characters at once, bantering back and forth, seemingly in the studio at the same time. You could say he invented the video stunt. And you see that a lot now. And it's weird that those sort of things uh, that could be seen as sort of tropes now in a uh, in a comedy talk show mm-hmm. and they had to come from somewhere someone had to come up with it first mm-hmm. have you ever watched his his show the the Jonathan Winters show no that sort of stuff is kind of hard to find I just I I enjoy I find he was at his he was at his best when it was he kind of just appeared on different shows if that makes any sense he did a lot of great stuff on the Dean Martin show that you know Dean Martin had this hugely successful variety show and he did some great stuff with with Dean Martin. He would just come on and you know part of the roast as well, wasn't he? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, but he would come on these shows and he 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 loved, you know, he almost never had anything prepared. He would just say, "I'm coming," you know, "I'm coming on the show," and they wouldn't have any idea what he's doing, and he would just kind of make something happen through some kind of strange alchemy or whatever. He was kind of this like mercurial force, I guess, you know. I read that he'd do that on Carson as well, and he'd do his best to fool him. So when Carson was interviewing him, and he'd try and misdirect, misdirect him and try and get him to slip up with his questioning. And it made me think that's the whole format of uh, so many shows now, especially Comedy Bang Bang, yeah, uh, which comes up a lot in this show because it's obviously a big influence on this. And that that's what Scott does with all of his guests. And it's another thing where someone had to do it first. Uh-huh. And so... As you said, he he never really. Well, I guess he was in the mainstream, but he he, he was never like a household name like like Robin Williams. Oh, well, he was a, he was a pretty big name in the fifties yeah. and his fifties, sixties, and seventies, and even into the eighties and and things like that. He was a pretty. I mean, the last few years, I mean, he was. I mean, he was 
when he died. I think I'm not sure how old he was when he died, but he was working less and less and yeah. things like that. So well, I'll rephrase: he's not as historically recognized. Yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, but then to have started all of these different styles that are mm-hmm. now so prevalent today mm-hmm. is really important. Yeah, there is a um, Cliff Nesteroff um, in his book The Comedians, which is kind of a history of American comedy. Um, said in his opinion he said that the three most influential figures in comedy were in stand-up were in terms of guiding the path of it were uh, Lenny Bruce Mort Saul and Jonathan Winters what was the second one? Mort Saul I'll have to look him up I, yeah. I'm not familiar he's still alive actually he, he was kind of they were kind of like the three schools of comedy because you had Lenny Bruce who did kind of the, the dark dark kind of. acerbic yeah you know uh, observational comedy and then Mort Saul, which did very kind of incisive political comedy and then Jonathan Winters who was just kind of this wild roguish character who inspired people like Robin Williams and Jim Carrey and all those people yeah. what was the name of that book again uh the comedians all right that's an easy one to remember yeah it's, it's yeah. excellent if you haven't read it I, I highly suggest it it's an excellent book this is a, a fact that I enjoyed reading uh, as a, a opposed to a lot of uh, the other research I do about uh, old comedians on this show is that Winters died of natural causes on the evening of April 11, 2013 in Montecito, California at the age of 87. It's usually something a lot more tragic than that. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty ripe old age for a comic. <laughs> I really like this this quote of his. I couldn't wait for success, so I went ahead without it. Yeah. And I think that's good advice for anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are you working on right now? Right now, I'm just trying to perform as much as I can and write as much as I can. I got to open for uh, Moshe Kasher recently, which was uh, which was a treat. You know, he's obviously a very prolific comedian, and that was a very exciting opportunity. Yeah, I mean, Vancouver is a very exciting comedic community. There's always shows coming up and things like that, and I think it's getting bigger and bigger. So I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens, but uh, trying to keep my nose to the grindstone, so to speak. Is there anything else you want to plug before we wrap up? Uh, no. <laughs> Not that I can think of. Uh, where, where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at the Harris Anderson. That's H-A-R-R-I-S. Uh, on Instagram at, at hello, H-U-L-L-O, Harris. And uh, yeah, whenever you see me in person i guess well thanks so much for coming today it's a pleasure thank you for having me that was harris anderson talking about jonathan winters join me next week when i talk to joseph stillwell about the coen brothers i'm doug vandalay and you've been listening to comedy zeitgeist you can follow me on twitter at doug vandalay and follow the show at comedy zeitgeist make sure to follow cave goblins on everything and also check out everything economics here on the cave goblin network if you're into a little bit of more of a informational podcast. See you all next time.